You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Today, we are honored to be joined by Peter Sands, Executive Director since 2018 of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. Peter, thanks so much for being with us. A bit about the fund and about Peter. Peter came to the fund in 2018 after a a very distinguished career as a banker, as CEO of Standard Chartered. Peter was also very active, based at Harvard and elsewhere in the aftermath of the Ebola outbreak in, in West Africa in 1415, played a role, important role in writing about these uh, pandemics and the international response. In this particular period now with COVID-19, the coronavirus pandemic raging, it becomes very important what key mechanisms like the Global Fund are doing, both to protect their existing assets, but also to turn those and repurpose those and use their influence and capacities to try and strengthen a response in those low-income countries that we all know are going to be beset by this pandemic and which have high vulnerabilities in terms of their weak preparedness, but also the populations themselves being quite vulnerable. Uh, there's two steps that we'll hear about from Peter. A um, early March announcement of grant flexibility, allowing 5% of existing grants to partner countries to be repurposed. And I understand a number of countries have tap that uh, up to about $70 million. But more recently, in 9th of April, uh, the creation of a response mechanism with $500 million resources attached to it. Peter, I also want to just offer my congratulations to you for the successful replenishment uh, in 2019 at $14 billion. That was a, a big event and a very promising outcome. And congratulations to you and your staff and all of the folks who mobilized for this. What I'd like to ask you first to talk about is you wrote a column, a short column, a while back about how economists and financiers look at the world versus how public health looks at the world. We know that the response has really revealed this tension between economists and public health. And you're very unusual in that your, your career and has spanned both. And you're, you're watching this happen. And making the point that oftentimes these two worlds don't necessarily connect with one another in a meaningful way. Tell us a bit about your thinking on that. Well, it's a little depressing in a way. When I stepped down from being CEO of Standard Chartered in 2015, I went to Harvard and I decided that I was going to focus my attention on an area that I thought was a bit of a gap, which was the communication and intellectual interaction between people in the finance and economic world and people in the global health world. So I did some work for the US National Academy of Medicine, for the World Bank. I wrote some pieces for the New England Journal, for the Lancet, on exactly this and on why it is that economists and financiers and public health people don't seem to speak the same language. You could say, well, I was prescient, or you could also say that I singularly failed to change what was going on, because uh, the reality is we came to January of this year and you still had that disconnect. And one of the things that I tried to do back in 2015, 2016, was to get the IMF to take infectious disease risk 
more seriously, to include it in Article 4 consultations on the economic risks facing a country. And I was not successful. I think it might happen now. But it is a problem, though, because as recently as early February, I was reaching out to people I know in the finance and central banking world saying, guys, we have a problem. We have a problem coming our way. And I couldn't get traction. It was really interesting. Now, it's not all the fault of the people on the finance and economic side. It's also the fault of people on the public health side who tend not to speak in ways that economists and financiers understand. There's an element of crying wolf, of always saying that every problem is the biggest problem ever. And it, and it has real consequences. The real consequence is we haven't spent enough money preparing for the kind of situation we face now um, because of that lack of communication. And I'm hoping that if there's one benefit of what we're going through right now is that once and for all, we resolve that problem. And do you see any evidence that this clash between an economics perspective and a public health perspective is changing now? Oh, I think it is. (laughs) I think it is because the sheer scale of the economic impacts mean that anybody who's doing economic risk analysis or financial risk analysis is going to have to think in the future about the risks of things like this happening. This is a, a, a paradigm shift in the way you think about the nature of risks affecting the economy. This is bigger than the global financial crisis in 2008 in terms of its economic and financial impact. So you can't not look at that. So I, I do think the game has changed now. I mean, our conversations early in the outbreak with economists uh, and with business leadership, it was often folks would fall back on, we're just going to see a repeat of the V pattern. We're going to see a a sharp decline and a sharp recovery. And that was kind of the image that came to the surface over many, many, many conversations. And it took a while for that to begin to come under a serious challenge to where we're now seeing right. the virus as something that was not going to be seasonal, was not going to be short term, but was going to drive things forward for an indefinite period, certainly until we get to some point where we have a vaccine. I think that's right. And what it betrayed, actually, is a lack of understanding of what the underlying problem was. I mean, I saw central bankers and policy, economic policymakers um, throwing resource, trillions of dollars in early March at the kind of stock market and business shocks they were seeing. The problem with that is unless you address the underlying health problem, the problem just gets worse. There's no amount of central bank balance sheet expansion that is going to stop a virus in its track. The realization that people had to come to was actually the economic answer is to deal with the virus. Correct. Everything else is just dealing with symptoms. And that took a bit of time to, I think, percolate as an idea. I also think there's a completely false debate that goes on about the economics versus, you know, wealth versus health. The reality is, is that in most places, people voted with their feet. In a lot of places, people were not going to restaurants, staying at home, even before governments took action. And the reason a lot of flights were cancelled was not because governments cancelled the flights. It was because there were no people flying in the flights. 
the economic effect is a, is a function of the fear. What you get is a contagion of fear that spreads far more rapidly than the disease itself. And then the challenge for policymakers is how do you manage that fear? How do you shape that fear in a way that actually gets you a better epidemiological response rather than just panic and chaos? And some governments have done a better job than others at doing it. But it's where the challenge of when countries are going into the transition mode now, thinking about how they get out of lockdown, I don't think it's nearly as simple as government suddenly saying, you can do this. Because I suspect that a lot of people will say, well, it might be that I can do this, but do I really want to? And so it's a much more complex response than that. So, I mean, ultimately, we will only sort out the economic implications of COVID by sorting out COVID. Thank you. Let's move to how this is all likely to impact low-income countries, those countries that the Global Fund is most deeply engaged in supporting on HIV, TB, and malaria. Just how big is the risk that these historic achievements of the past two decades in health are going to be wiped out, in your view? Well, I think we face a very, very challenging period ahead of us in the developing countries. In most of them, the health systems are pretty fragile and could easily get overwhelmed. In most of them, or many of them, the disease burdens from other infectious diseases, the ones I deal with, HIV, TB, and malaria, are very significant. And in many of them, in most of them, the reserves, the financial reserves of both households and countries are a tiny fraction of what you have in the advanced economies. When you add all that up, it means that these are very vulnerable communities and that many of the strategies that have been used elsewhere, such as lockdowns, are very difficult to implement. When people are living in a slum, when people live on the money they make each day, you're basically confronting people with a choice between feeding their family and protecting them from exposure to the virus. That's a very tough choice. And so I think we will see a very difficult few months ahead of us. We're already seeing disruption to the programs that we have put in place to fight HIV, TB, and malaria. And when you think that HIV, TB, and malaria kill 2.7 million people a year, and that that is half what it was a decade ago, so we've made enormous progress, but it's still 2.7 million people a year, still far too many. The stakes are very high. We cannot afford to slip back at all on these diseases, and we could slip back as an inadvertent consequence of both COVID itself and the response strategies to COVID. And to reinforce the point that this isn't theoretical, Ebola in West Africa actually ended up killing more people through incremental deaths of malaria than it killed from Ebola itself because of the disruption to health services, because mothers were frightened about bringing their children with temperatures into clinics. And more recently, the most recent Ebola outbreak actually ended up killing more 
children as a result of measles because of the impact on vaccination programs. So if you, you could easily see a situation in Africa where because of demographics and having far fewer old people who are the most vulnerable to COVID, you might get actually lower direct mortality from COVID, but much higher indirect mortality from the impact on other diseases. Thank you, Peter. Um, I'd like to introduce and invite my friend and co-host, Andrew Schwartz, to jump in here. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Peter, thanks for being with us here today. Peter, I want to ask you, we're in a world where there's been something of a breakdown of international institutions. What do you think is the future of international institutions in this COVID world? Well, I think we've all been very challenged by the sheer scale and pace of what has happened with COVID. But I think I would also say that COVID demonstrates the absolute essential role for international institutions. We are all totally interdependent. We have to learn from each other and we have to respond in a way that makes sense, not just within the confines of one country's borders, but for the world as a whole. Ultimately, if we don't contain COVID in the poorest and most vulnerable places in the world, it will keep coming back and hitting other parts of the world as well. We all have to fight this together. The slogan we've been using at the Global Fund is unite to fight, because that's what we need to do. And it, we need to do it across countries. We need to do it across the different elements of society, be it civil society, communities, the private sector, government. They all need to come together. Where's the biggest challenge to international institutions working with each other and working with governments across the world? Well, I think what you've seen with COVID is acute pressure on governments to focus on their own problem. And often a sense that the best way to do that is to sort of close down borders and stop exporting any of the critical commodities and just concentrate on the problem right in front of them. So that's one challenge. Um, a second challenge has been that most global multilateral institutions have particular mandates. And sometimes something like COVID arrives that doesn't fit your mandate. And then the question is, how quickly can you adapt? And by their nature, as multi-stakeholder, complicated institutions, multilateral organizations aren't always the most nimble. Now, as it happens, I think the Global Fund, which has a very clear mandate, HIV, TB and malaria, have been able to react pretty quickly um, to COVID and to put money on the ground to actually deploy resources quite fast. Uh, and that's partly, I think, reflecting the fact that the origin of the Global Fund, if you think about it, was the last big pandemic to hit humanity, HIV. That's what drove the creation of um, the Global Fund. And in its early days, the Global Fund was an emergency response to HIV. So although since then, we've got much more sophisticated in our operations, we're doing HIV, TB and malaria, deep in our DNA and the way we think about the world is when it comes down to a situation when a pandemic is threatening humanity, 
you have to act, you have to act fast, and you have to act to save people's lives. I'm encouraged that the fund has stepped forward as it has, and Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, has done that. Uh, USAID has $500 million dedicated to the response. What worries me is, to get back to one point you make, the world is very fractured and very inward at this moment. The major donor powers are ones that are the most deeply impacted by what is happening, uh, and and what's happening is uh, having staggering consequences on economies, on fisks, and obviously on the health and well-being of the populations. And so when you look out and imagine, okay, this is going to hit low-income countries in Africa, it's going to hit other Asian populations with very large, vulnerable, dense urban populations and some rural populations, what's striking is the absence of serious international mobilization around this, the lack of coordination, the lack of leadership at a high level, it's just not there. When President Trump had the video teleconference of G7 leaders over the weekend, the topic of great concern was the attack upon WHO. It was not about how are we going to rally in order to be able to both take care of the problems we face, economic and health viral problems, in our own countries, but we need to think ahead because the devastation that could be exacted in low-income countries, the economic and and viral damage that could be experienced there could be way beyond what we're seeing here and we need to rally, but we're just not seeing that. Do you agree with that? And what can be done to trigger a higher level response than what we've seen up to now, which is pretty shocking, frankly? Well, I'm not sure I can solve the issue of differing perspectives and frictions between G7 and G20 countries. But what is within my ability to do is to ensure that what we are doing is working extremely closely with both the other multilaterals. I mean, I am talking every single day to WHO, to Gavi, to UNITE, to the World Bank, but also the big bilateral partners like USAID, like DFID, uh, and so on, so as to ensure that in practical terms, what we are doing in supporting countries in their response to COVID and in sustaining the programs on HIV, TB, and malaria, in practical terms, that we are working together in a coordinated way. Uh, And actually, that is working pretty well, actually. I mean, of course, in a situation like this with so many moving parts, uh, and people trying to act very quickly. There, there are occasions where people trip over each other. But on the whole, I would say the operational coordination among the multilateral partners is working pretty well. Encouraged to hear that. Andrew? Peter, as you look at what's going on with the world economy, how do you expect governments to work with you all in terms of financial aid for poorer countries when they're struggling to take care of their own country? Well, that's an obvious concern. Although I would say that in our conversations with our donors, and as Steve noted at the beginning, we have just completed a replenishment campaign in which we secured a record amount of pledges totaling $14 billion. Our donors are incredibly supportive. Um, and our donors giving no indication of pulling back from their pledges in any respect. Indeed, if anything, what we are seeing is donors accelerating the conversion of those pledges 
um, into cash into um, our bank account. I do think there's going to be pressure on government's budgets, on overall donor budgets. On the other hand, I think the salience, the political importance of global health, the awareness, the health of people living thousands of miles away can have an impact on your health. I think these will underpin the commitment of donors to continuing to fight and continuing to support the fight against infectious diseases and to strengthening health systems in the poorer and more vulnerable parts of the world. So as you talk to governments that are inclined to look inward, is your message that what happens you know, in the developing world affects you or, or what do you tell them? Well, that is certainly the case. I mean, if you're going to be serious about notions of global health security, you have to think globally. The second thing about global health security is you can't just have a concept of global health security that focuses on the diseases that might kill people in rich countries, but doesn't include diseases that kill people in poor countries. You're not going to get a lot of buy-in from people in poor countries if that's the way you think about global health security. It also doesn't make any sense because actually the things you do to fight diseases like HIV, TB and malaria are the things, are the strengths, the capacities, the disease surveillance, the laboratories, the health workers, the supply chains that you need for responding to new diseases. It's the same sort of capabilities and infrastructure. So we shouldn't be thinking about them as totally distinct things. It's also the case that some of the bigger threats, because at the moment we're focused on COVID, but let's not kid ourselves. There are other threats out there. One of the other threats is what we call multidrug resistant TB. It's the nastiest form of TB. In fact, multidrug resistant TB kills 250 to 300,000 people a year. And we aren't doing a very good job, if we're honest with ourselves, in fighting um, MDR-TB. We need to do a better job because, A, it's killing a lot of people, and B, like many diseases, it's constantly reinventing itself. And we shouldn't assume that it couldn't get worse. So I'm, I'm sensing that you see this as a real opportunity to convince governments and business people and donors that this is the time now to invest in multinational organizations that are working to better the health of all of us. Look, I'm never going to talk about a pandemic that is tragically killing large numbers of people as an opportunity. But what I do think this pandemic is doing is changing the way people are thinking about health, about the interdependence of people's health across the world, and about what it takes to make us more protected um, from such threats. And do I think the Global Fund has a role to play in that rethinking? Yes, I do. I don't think we're the only player. There are a combination of different institutions that need to play their role in making the world a safer place. But I do think we have a role to play um, as we both fight COVID itself and as we think about how to make the world safer in the future. Let me ask you this. Who understands this better, policymakers generally or business people generally? <laughs> I think the starting point is that 
most people in positions of power and influence massively underestimated the nature of the threat and very few understood the scale of what was going to have to be done to respond to it. So I don't know whether either policymakers or business leaders were in a better place. I don't think either were probably in a very good place as a starting point. And to be fair, look, this is a not a situation any of us have faced in our lifetimes. And there's been an enormous amount of sort of learning along the way. In some ways, I wish some of the learning had been faster. And that's another reason why we need to think about this world and this situation from a sort of global perspective, because there's constantly, there are new things being tried, experimented with, both medical and approaches all over the world. And we need to ensure that we're quickly sifting out what works and what doesn't. Because one thing we have learned with this pandemic is that when you're fighting a pandemic, days count. In an exponential growth situation, every day counts. Peter, I um, want to get around to a question of what to do next. I mean, if we imagine that Many low-income countries are quickly approaching a, a moment of crisis where there are huge gaps in testing, in testing reagents, in training, in protective gear, in oxygen ventilators, in many uh, of the basic institutional capacities that would allow for screening and isolation, quarantining, contact tracing, that that domain of requirements has to be a priority as we look forward. Here in Washington, as the next funding instrument has been negotiated out in Congress, there's been a debate about, well, shouldn't there be an emergency provision with several billion dollars in it that could be targeted to these low-income countries? How much is going to be required? You can come up with any sort of numbers. But the one thing that emerges as as a question is, how do you move that money? If we had four or five billion dollars in hand that could be put towards that task or half that amount, but just pick a dollar amount and you you said, okay, we know that supply chains are disrupted. We know that international transportation in and out is disrupted. We know that embassies are cutting their staff capacity. International organizations are doing the same because of the safety concerns around. We know that countries like the U.S. and U.K. are putting bans on exports of some of these items while their own emergencies are underway. Where do you imagine you, you may, we may have pots of money, but not be clear. How do we, how do we navigate this environment? Do we ask the global fund? Could you take on this responsibility at a higher level? Do you go to straight to governments? Do you go to other entities? What's your thinking on this? Cause I do think this is a problem that we're going to face in a very serious way, if not already. It's a very good question, Steve, just to give you a sort of where we are from a global fund perspective. At the beginning of March, we made these grant flexibilities available, as you mentioned earlier. So far, we've provided support to 61 countries through that mechanism. And then just about 10 days ago, we launched um, a second mechanism with an initial capacity of about $500 million. And I expect that that second capacity we will have deployed within a month. Because the value of what we can contribute actually is the speed with which we can put that money to work. And the focus of that will both be on some of the immediate needs of countries, diagnostic testing, 
postal protective equipment for health workers, and also on the immediate adaptations of HIV, TB, and malaria programs. So to give you a kind of example, many of the countries we are supporting malaria programs are in are doing bed net distribution campaigns this year. Um, that's when you take bed nets for families sleep under um, and you have to replace them every two or three years and they're impregnated with insecticides and they've proved remarkably effective at reducing the number of cases and the number of children that die of malaria. But over time, they have holes in them, the insecticide wears out, so you have to replace them. And I think we have something like 17 countries that have bed net campaigns um, scheduled for this year. And countries are saying, how are we going to do this when we do lockdown? Because what you typically do is you take your big pile of bed nets to the centre of the village, you invite everybody in, and you get them to sort of sign their name and take their bed nets back to their house. That's not exactly compatible with a social distancing approach. So we have been working with countries on, okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to actually have the team taking the bed nets in, not to a central point, they're literally going to put one on each doorstep. But we also need the team to be wearing protective clothing. They've got to have gloves and masks and so on. And so there are incremental costs to this because it means that it takes longer because you're going to every house and you have to have the gloves and masks for the workers. So we are looking at providing money to countries to do exactly that sort of thing so that we can preserve the momentum of the HIV, TB and malaria programs as well as helping countries respond to the immediate challenge of COVID. Now, as I say, my the 500 million we're deploying, we will deploy extremely quickly. Um, if we really want to help the developing world respond effectively and not lose momentum on the other items of the health agenda, and it's not just HIV, TB and malaria, the same would be true with the vaccination programs that Gavi runs that protect children from measles and so on. The same would be true about maternal health programs. All of these are going to need adaptation and incremental money to keep them going. We need billions more. There's no doubt about it. Peter, if we came to you, if donors came to you with uh, with a plea saying, here's $2 billion, here's $3 billion, we need to move these commodities towards the same kind of partner countries that you're operating with. Can you handle this and take on this mission without damaging your own ongoing and terribly important work without distorting things. Is that conceivable? Is that plausible? Or is that something that just would be become too much? I mean, it depends on the scale of money you're talking about. But the short answer is, could we absorb billions of dollars more? Yes, we could, because we have very well established relationships in the countries. We have partnerships. We work with all these other partners, WHO, UNDP, all World Bank and so on and a lot of civil society partners. We have all the sort of financial controls and risk management in place. And the way we've designed this second mechanism, the mechanism we've just launched with 500 million, we've deliberately designed it in a way that can absorb more money. And so it's been architected in that way. And we've already had one private sector player already has made a contribution in the sense that Apple, with the launch of its new iPhone, um, launched an Apple red iPhone and, and said they wanted the money coming from sales of that red new iPhone to go directly to this new COVID-related response 
mechanism. So we've designed the mechanism in a way that can absorb more money. Look, we're not the only platform. There's a case and there is already a um, a very large-scale response, big structured through the World Bank. Gavi is doing things. We all have our part to play. The thing that I would say is that I do think it makes sense to use existing mechanisms. There's always a temptation when you face a new challenge to create a new vehicle to deal with the new challenge. The problem with that is that it always takes time to set up. There's then all sorts of definitional and scope issues versus existing vehicles. And also in the global health arena, like in many others, where we appear to be quite good at setting things up and not so good at getting rid of them when the problem has gone away. And so there's already, uh, if you're a health minister in an African country, you already have to deal with too many different development partners, too many different providers of resources, all with their different reporting requirements and mandates and so on. The last thing we want to be doing at this point is making the life of a health minister, of a completely stressed health minister in a poorer country, more complicated. Thank you so much. This has been an exceptionally rich and useful conversation. Thank you so much. We try and close on a positive note on these conversations. And so I want to come back to you and ask you, where do you draw the greatest hope and strength in this particular dark moment? I think the real lesson and the source of hope from COVID is that we are a common humanity, that we face the same challenges and that the answers are shared answers and that this should be a trigger to us realizing that and acting upon that truth. Thank you so much. And thank you for all of your leadership and for all that the Global Fund does. Thank you so much, Peter. 